leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Recursion Pharmaceuticals is reinventing the drug discovery process by turning biology into a data science problem. The company has set an audacious goal for itself of developing 100 drugs in 10 years. Though Recursion initially focused on repurposing existing drugs to treat rare diseases, it has expanded its work to include new disease areas and is looking at new chemical entities as well. We spoke to Chris Gibson, founder and CEO of Recursion, about the approach the company's taking, the challenges of mixing biologists and data scientists together, and why he's holding fast to his goal of attaining an unparalleled level of drug development efficiency through the use of artificial intelligence. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to discuss recursion pharmaceuticals, its use of artificial intelligence to reinvent the drug discovery process, and how the company has evolved since it began. Let's start with the problem of drug discovery and development, though, which is still a long and costly process. Where do you see the biggest bottlenecks, and where do you think the opportunity is to address those bottlenecks? Yeah, I mean, I really think that you can boil it down to two main two main bottlenecks. The first is that we, as a group of incredible people all around work all around the world, working on uh, on trying to find treatments for people with all kinds of diseases, we still do a pretty poor job uh, of understanding biology as a system. And I think this bears out in the fact that nine out of ten programs that start in the clinic. Uh, fail, and <clears throat> they fail for one of two reasons, and I think in many ways these are the bottlenecks. And the first reason is because we picked the wrong target. There's great target engagement. Uh, you know, you, you hit everything that you want to hit, but ultimately it turns out that that thing's not as important as, as we all thought in the disease. Then uh, that's a pretty common failure mode. And the other is because there's some sort of unexpected effect, uh, some sort of toxicity or side effect. And I think, uh, you know, it's, it's very reductionist to boil it all down to those two things. But in the end, uh, that's really the bottleneck. And I think it, in the end, stems from this inability to understand something as complex as biology uh, as a system. And this focus on trying to boil it all down to <clears throat> one specific target uh, uh, in the absence of all of that complexity of biology around it. Uh, so for us, that's where we see the real opportunity. It's, 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 it's trying to do drug discovery and drug development in a way that embraces biological complexity. When recursion began, it was focused on repurposing drugs for rare diseases. 
You've since broadened your focus. How do you describe recursion today? Yeah, so we continue to do a lot of work uh, in repurposing, and the vast majority of those efforts are directed against rare diseases and rare genetic diseases. There's both regulatory reasons for that and, and technical reasons for that. Um, that continues to be a huge effort of ours. And in fact, of this 30 or so programs that are in our pipeline all the way from uh, moving into the clinic now with our, our recent FDA clearance uh, for CCM, all the way back through programs that are sort of just off the screen and in earlier validation, um, 28 out of 30 of those are essentially repurposing efforts for rare disease. However, over the past couple of years as we've developed our platform, we've started to be able to do things like make predictions and inferences about biology that suggested to us that it was worth expanding sort of the footprint. And so we've done that along two axes. One is across the biological axis. Uh, that's moving into places like inflammation, uh, innate host responses, immunology, uh, even infectious disease. Um, and with that, I think be, it gave us the necessity, I think, to move into new chemical entities. I think the repurposing play doesn't work as well. Uh, and so in many ways, we think of the uh, drug repurposing for rare diseases, our training wheels. Uh, now that the company's been around for four years and working really, really hard, we're sort of taking those off and, and riding the bike down the road ourselves. You said that what you're doing is turning biology into a data science problem. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so there are huge data sets all around the world that contain within them um, many of the answers that are, that are really difficult for humans to see. And what I mean by that is imagine a system so complex that you or I can't explain it. Uh, but, but given the recent advances in compute, and in particular some of the advances in the space of machine learning, um, it has become possible to identify important patterns, uh, not, not sort of uh, identify overfit patterns, but identify relevant signal uh, amongst these huge data sets that's just impossible for a human to see. Um, it's impossible for a human to look at trillions of data points and identify subtle signals, but there are machine learning algorithms that enable you to do that. And what we've been able to build at Recursion is a, is a data generation engine, and that is our platform, that generates uh, the equivalent over the last year of about a quarter million uh, high-definition movies, uh, so a huge, huge amount of data, right? more than a petabyte of data. And by the end of this year, we'll be generating um, something like seven petabytes of data a year. Again, to put that in perspective, that's like all the movies ever made generated every couple months. Um, and, and, and so that amount of data is just too vast for people to look through, but there are really important signals in it. And data science is the study of, of, of those data. And I think what we've done is moved away from the brilliant scientists sitting in a laboratory, spending decades trying to understand a disease. In fact, we're standing on their shoulders. In fact, many of the, the genes that we're working on, we know of because of the work of these scientists. But ultimately, when going back to the beginning of looking at biology as a system, if you want to know how that gene interacts with every other gene in the genome or with thousands of, of, of pathways simultaneously, it just becomes too much to hold in any of our heads, no matter how brilliant we are. And I think this is the place where things like machine learning are going to really transform and have transformed industries. And so for us, um, you know, this, this is the data science discovery future is, is generating these huge, huge data sets. We do that in-house so that we can be very careful about the way you annotate the data because people in the space will tell you that, you, you know, if you, if you have a bad data set, then you're not going to be able to generate any useful answers. So we work very hard 
to generate really, really good data sets. And then we turn loose really sophisticated uh, data scientists to help us see those patterns. And then we don't sort of askew the, 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 the use of scientists. We simply allow them to, the data scientists to help us look at millions of hypotheses all together, all at once, and to identify the set of those that are most probably useful to explore. And then we hand those back to the scientists, the dozens of, of scientists we have working in our labs. But we sort of shortcut that decades-long iteration process that we've all gone through in our dissertation or in our later work, um, we try to shortcut that and, and sort of hand them the keys and say, okay, we think this might be the answer. Now go prove it to yourself or, or prove, it, prove it to the team. You began with uh, an audacious goal of developing 100 drugs in 10 years. Now that you've been at this a few years, has the reality of drug development tempered that in any way? Or you still think you'll be able to reach that goal? Yeah, that's, that's a... That's a really important goal for us, and I think that there is a real probability that we will hit that. And it continues to be, in many ways, a, a guiding light for, for myself and for the company. There's an important um, sentiment about setting ambitious goals. Um, and if, it, if it's 2025 and we have 76 drugs in the clinic, or we have 176 drugs in the clinic, what a goal like that does is it forces you and your team to uh, to divest yourselves of assumption um, because the only assumption you can make is that if you do things the way that they've always been done, you are certain to not achieve your goal. And uh, I think it is, you know, you're looking at a world where people are, are raising or spending hundreds of millions or billions of dollars on very interesting problems around video games and social media and all these other things. Um, and I think it is we need people to set these audacious goals to be okay with the possibility of failure and to drive forward towards a future that I am certain exists. I am certain that there is a company, and I believe there is a large probability that it is us. But if it's not us, it's going to be somebody soon who's able to change the way that this all works. And, and, and I, I fundamentally believe that, and, I, and I've even noticed... Uh, you know, everybody said we were crazy when, when we first said that a few years ago. Um, and even if you look at the people we've been able to recruit to the company, I think we've convinced a lot of pretty well-known, pretty experienced people that we're not, as they've looked under the hood. Um, so whether we hit it or not, I don't know. But what I do know is that this team is going to do incredible things, and we are going to take the biggest swing we can at something that I think could fundamentally impact tens or hundreds of millions of people. And I'm okay with taking that swing, even if it ends up being a mess. Well, well drill down a bit for me. You, you've touched on this, but how does drug discovery at recursion differ from what I might find at a more traditional biopharmaceutical company? What's your approach? Yeah, so um, I'll maybe give the high-level uh, uh, sort of workflow, um, but then I'll talk about some of the things that that enables. And these are things that are sort of new uh, since the company got its start. So. We have a large automated laboratory full of robots, and each week they do about 100,000 experiments for us, and by the end of this year we'll be able to do about half a million experiments a week. And from every one of those experiments where we're modeling a different disease, adding a different uh, small molecule or large molecule compound or some combination of those things, we generate images. Um, right now, about 2 million images a week. And these images are generated on microscopes. They're images of... Uh, each image contains thousands of human cells or hundreds of human cells, depending on the cell type. And we leverage those images to try and understand what's happening in, happening in biology as a system. And what I sort of liken this to is a facial recognition algorithm. So 
Um, if if I use a facial recognition algorithm on you or me, uh, I can tell us apart, even among billions of different people. And that could be useful for simple questions, like telling you and I apart for security. But I suspect, and there's even been some work into this, that if you used a facial rec recognition algorithm on people with different diseases, you might be able to identify, for example, that certain facial features are highly associated with certain genetic disease. Uh, and this is, you know, clinicians do this in their physical exam in many ways, but there's even a company that uses facial recognition to diagnose disease. Pathologists have looked under the microscope for 100 years at the way human cells look to diagnose disease and even to say that people don't have disease. And so there's just so much information in these images, and if you apply these sophisticated, uh, you know, they're akin to these facial recognition algorithms, but even more sophisticated neural networks to this massive data set of images, you're able to start seeing patterns in that data. And those patterns can essentially say a disease looks different in these hundreds of ways from, from healthy, and if you add thousands of drugs, then you can identify one of those that makes the cells look healthy again. Um, and we physically add the drugs in the laboratory with robots and take pictures again. And that sort of brute force approach, what we call radical empiricism, is, is where the company started. But what that's enabled today is this huge data set. All our data is relatable. Data we generated two years ago has been aggregated with the data we generated this week. And we're able to ask much bigger questions. And now actually able to do things like predict before an experiment what drugs are likely to work for a given disease model, just based on taking pictures of the disease model and referring to the millions of pictures we've taken of chemical compounds in, in tens of thousands of different contexts in the past. And this is, I think, where we're going to go from sort of just an efficiency play, which was the beginning of the company, to real radical insights. And what that looks like is, you know, three, five years from now, being in the position to be generating massive uh, data sets in our laboratory that generate for us the ability to increasingly predict a priori what chemical compound will do the things we want in a disease and not do the things we don't want. And by that I mean predict efficacy and various side effects or toxicities or, or you know, sort of ADME or other sorts of, 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 of properties. So. We don't know which of those areas we'll be able to predict yet, um, or, or, or we don't know all of the areas we'll be able to predict. We, we know that this won't work for all disease, but we have seen enough signal in the data so far that we believe over the coming years as we generate larger and larger data sets that we will be able to essentially move one day from this, you know, starting to study a disease all the way to having the confidence to start all of the check boxes for, you know, an FDA IND um, uh, in a very short period of time, in weeks or months. And, and I don't know if this is three years away or 30 years away, but it's very clear to me that if you generate a large enough data set with a diverse enough set of, of, of inputs, that you'll be able to move in this direction. And that's what recursion is all about. And so today it looks like we do these experiments. We find things that look very promising, and we hand them to biologists, and the biologists then go, do all the assays that the industry will expect. We've got partnerships with multiple top 10 pharma companies. We now have an, an IND cleared from the FDA. Um, so, you know, we sort of backfill the, the, the drugs that we think are likely to work for a disease. We sort of backfill all the data that the industry traditionally generates, but we hope that we're less likely to fail and generate that data around 
something that doesn't move forward. But as our algorithms get more and more complex, we'll simply make predictions that we believe are robust enough to move directly to the IND enabling studies. Uh, again, in a matter of weeks or months. And so that's the future we envision. Um, and now every day we work on, on trying to get there. You're both the product of convergence and living that in a very real way from a human resources point of view. What have you learned about mixing data scientists and biologists? How do you get them to speak the same language? Are there cultural issues? Do you need to hire people who are already accustomed to working in an interdisciplinary way? I think that's a fantastic and underappreciated problem, not just in our industry, but in any industry where you have a convergence of, of people and the cultures that are associated with their fields. I think it is also one of the things that we consider to be our competitive advantage. Um, my co-founders and I have worked tirelessly since the beginning of the company to generate a culture where uh, people's insights are valued across the organization independent of their background. And, and while there's always challenges and you always try to make things better, I think we've done a really good job of creating a place where data scientists feel okay asking why about a, a biological question, and biologists feel okay asking why or challenging a data science problem or question. And we have software engineers and business people and BD people, and in many ways it's no different. Many of the large pharma have all of these people as well. But we've, we've, we've built a culture where I think there is true sort of um, true value is given from and between every group of the company. And I think if you do that, then people, uh, people are able to invest in the relationships between each other, not treat the different groups as silos. And what you actually see are some of the best ideas. We see some of the best ideas where, where a data scientist is going home at night and she or he is reading biology textbooks and coming in and asking questions the next day to their biologist friends and vice versa. And, you know, the biologists are, you know, we have a program where we let people at the company take different courses, and some of the biologists are taking uh, beginning data science questions. And when you have people be curious about each other and open to the ideas that come from the other groups, we believe that's where these really, really cool ideas come from. And we've seen that. In fact, one of the folks at our company who, who I think is among our better biologists now um, started three years ago as a data scientist, and he essentially had high school biology. But he has been religious in, in sitting down, I assume, every night and just reading and, and talking to his peers. And so now we have this incredible data scientist who happens to be a great biologist, and, and he and many others are generating just these incredible ideas that I or our co-founders or my co-founders never could have come up with ourselves. And that's this culture that, frankly, has been our biggest focus since the beginning. As you've moved beyond repurposing and beyond rare disease, one thing I imagine would be helpful is to expand the access to the libraries of compounds you're able to screen. Mm -hmm. Is there a critical mass for this? How, how important to your work is the libraries you have access to, and, and what are you doing to increase that? You're absolutely right. Uh, the diversity of, of chemistry in our library is really important, uh, both because we're exploring areas of biology where diverse chemistry may be useful, and also as we train algorithms, uh, it's important that those algorithms are subjected to sort of diverse, uh, diverse chemistry. Um, what I would say is we've taken some pretty practical steps. We now have more than 100,000 compounds in-house at the company. Um, from pretty diverse uh, sort of realms of chemistry. 
Um, and we don't yet know whether that's sufficient. My, my, my strong guess is that it won't be sufficient to generate the algorithms that we ultimately want to build. But, you know, at the, at the risk of getting a little bit too far in the weeds here, what's very nice about building a learning system, and I don't just mean the software we're building, I mean almost the platform itself and the company and our culture, is that we, we're in a situation where now we have enough sort of computational horsepower that we're starting to get to the point where we can make predictions about things. So we can take these 100,000 compounds and we could ask questions like, prospectively, because we generate our own data in-house, we can prospectively ask, how good are we at predicting what chemical compounds from this large library are going to be useful in some disease we haven't experimented on yet? And then when we are right in those predictions, we reinforce elements of the algorithms. And when we're wrong in those predictions, it's a signal to us to generate more data. And so what you can almost imagine is, you know, I wouldn't call it a random walk, but you can almost imagine sort of this this weaving as we bring more and more chemicals in, we'll be able to start to have statistical inference about which areas of chemistry we can make good predictions in and which areas of chemistry we can make poor predictions in. And that can then inform how we build our library. Uh, and, and so, again, I've gotten a little bit in the weeds here, but I think it's an important concept and, and one that we try to generate kind of across the company. Of, of trying to build iterative cycles that help you grow in the right direction. And I think this is what we'll find. I ultimately don't think what we need is a billion small molecules and do ex and we need to do experiments on all of those. I think we, we need to be able to make predictions about where our, our algorithms are good, where they're poor, test those predictions, and then fill the library out in a directed way. And ultimately, I think if we do that, who knows the exact order of magnitude, but we'll probably have to do real physical experiments on many hundreds of thousands or millions of molecules, but not tens or hundreds of millions of molecules. Well, let's talk about your pipeline. By and large, your most advanced programs are in rare diseases, but you're now working in immuno-oncology, and you even have a deal with the Gates Foundation to do some work on malaria and infectious disease. What's the range of diseases you're pursuing, and is your approach agnostic to disease type, or is it better suited as an approach to one type of disease over another? Yeah, so I think you can, at the very, very high level, I think our, our platform and our approach is best suited to a disease where the causative perturbation is well understood. And what I, what I mean, I mean, you can see this evidence in our, in our focus initially on monogenic loss of function disease where there's very little controversy about the role of specific genes and specific diseases. In fact, in many cases, the penetrance is 100%. Um, and so we started there. And there are things like infectious disease where, you know, the malaria parasite is the cause of, of malarial disease. And, and we like areas of biology where that causative perturbation is, is very certain. And the reason is that ultimately we're building disease models in our, in our laboratory. And these models inform the sorts of hits we get. And we, while we don't know that our models are perfect representations of the complete pathophysiology of a disease, we can at least have some confidence that the first step we take in generating that model in, in any given cell type is an accurate one, if that makes sense. And so, so that's sort of where we've restricted ourselves. Now, 
you can extend that to sort of the next step, and we've started working in, in areas like inflammation and immuno-oncology. In, in this space, we've looked at things like secreted factors. So we've looked at hundreds of, of human cytokines and TLR agonists, for example. And these are pretty well-known and well-studied uh, sort of drivers of different biology. They certainly are a little bit more on the spectrum of, you know, if you've got a bunch of scientists in the room and ask them to identify the most important cytokine for each of 20 inflammatory diseases, you would not get a unanimous response like you would with the genetic diseases. Uh, and so I think we're moving a little bit away from that original focus. But ultimately, we, we really like to stay in places where the causative perturbation of biology is quite well understood. I believe as we generate what we call our, our map of biology, we'll be able to model much more complex disease and maybe even start working with patient cells or patient serum or other much more complex sort of uh, systems where we will have the opportunity perhaps to explore things that are less well understood. And that's why we traditionally haven't gone into things like Alzheimer's or, or, or type 1 diabetes at this point. As we think about the rate-limiting aspects of drug development, capital is high on that list as this is an expensive place to, to work in. You raised $60 million in late 2017. How far does that take you, and how much of a constraint is capital in regard to recursion realizing its ambitions? Yeah, so the, the capital we have now is sufficient for the company to continue growing for, for, for more than a year. Um, ultimately, the question around capital in a company like ours really comes down to how fast do you want to grow and how big is the opportunity in front of you. And I think the data that we've generated in-house and, and those that have really taken a look under the hood, be, be they the, the large pharma partners that, that we've uh, signed deals with or, or investors, um, I think the, the signal to them suggests that while there's still real risk in what we're doing, there is the potential that this could be a big game changer in the field of discovery and, and, and even development. Uh, and so for them, I think that there's, um, and for us, I think that there's a strong bias towards trying to seize an opportunity and move fast. And so uh, I think that means almost certainly that we'll, we'll need to, to bring in more capital in the future. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's something that I think we're, we're well positioned to do uh, based on the data we've generated and the data we share with, with those potential investors. Chris Gibson, co-founder and CEO of Recursion Pharmaceuticals. Chris, thanks as always. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.